Well, this is our last uh, sermon of this series. It feels to me like it's gone really fast. Um, in, a, in a weird way, it's been fun. Uh, I don't know if fun's probably the best word, but it's been interesting at least. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up what's coming the next few weeks. So uh, next week, we're going to do a standalone message on uh, the beautiful meaning of baptism. Uh, it kind of feels random after everything we've been talking about, but baptisms are coming up on Easter. And uh, I want to be able to make sure that those of you who have been baptized appreciate the full meaning of what that baptism is. And my guess is uh, that there are some things you'll learn next week that you went, wow, I'd had no idea that baptism signified that as well. Uh, and also, for those of you who haven't been baptized, next week will be a good chance for you to figure out whether maybe that's something that should happen. So that's what we'll do next week, just a standalone thing. And then the following three weeks, we're going to do a series called Fighting Fear. It's going to be kind of a systematic theology study, looking at the character of God and how who God is actually helps us fight three particular fears that I think we all face. So that's what we'll do. And then it'll be Easter. So Easter is right around the corner and uh, coming fast. So anyway, just a heads up, that is what's coming. If you are new with us today, you're here for the last message of this series, and we'll try to catch you up. Um, we've been looking at this book of Judges. It's a dark and serious and thought-provoking book in the Old Testament. Um, and the nation of Israel is in a really kind of interesting time. They have uh, just been kind of rescued out of Egypt. They've entered into a promised land. And in the book of Judges, they're, they're a country, but not really like we tend to think about a real strong federal government kind of country. They're more like the 13 colonies. If you kind of a picture what that might have been like in the early days of the United States. They're connected and they're together, but there's not this strong central government. There isn't a king because they're supposed to look to God as king. They're supposed to look to God as their authority. Um, but we see in the book of Judges that they really, really struggle with that. We said the very first week that what happens right before the book of Judges, at the end of the book of Joshua, is a Joshua who has followed Moses. Joshua leads the people in this kind of covenant renewal, or we called it the last night of camp. Right, the last night of camp is the night when it's like, hey, we're going to follow God down the mountain, right? Yeah! We really are, right? Yeah! Are you sure? Yeah! Right? And that's, that's kind of what happens at the end of the book of Joshua. People are going, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to serve God. But it's not very long in the book of Judges where you see that desire has faded. That commitment has waned. And people don't even seem to know the Lord. It says in Judges 2.10, we looked at this the first week. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's the generation after Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And that's what we see through this whole book. Is you see a lot of people who know about the Lord. They know about Yahweh. They know about this God. But they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. They aren't shaped by him. They aren't looking to him as king. And because of that, there's this disintegration that happens. And so most of the book of Judges is this description of all of these cycles. It's about 300 years worth of cycles that just keep happening over and over. Where the people of Israel sin, because of their sin, God sends them into servitude or oppression. Other nations rule over them. They don't like that. They cry out to God in supplication. God, help us. God, help us. We don't want to live like this anymore. And God sends a deliverer, sends a savior who brings salvation, a judge. And then there's a period of, of rest or of silence. And that cycle has just happened over and over and over again. And last week, we looked at the last of these cycles that are talked about in the book of Judges, Samson. And with Samson, here's something you just have to see. By the end of the Samson story, Israel is hanging on 
by a thread. By a thread. Right, 300 years before, at the beginning of the book of Judges, the, the people of Israel are called to be a light to the nations. They're called to be the kind of nation that the, the surrounding nations would look at and go, wow, they are different. They're distinct. We, we need to learn from them. And instead, by the end of the, of the cycles of Judges, by the end of Samson, the people of Israel are so comfortable being like all the other nations that actually when Samson is trying to fight against the Philistines, they would rather turn Samson over to the Philistines so that they could just live comfortably as Philistines. And in fact, if not for Samson constantly putting sand in the gears between him and the Philistines, the nation of Israel really would have just sort of faded and become the Philistines. But because of Samson, there's, there's at least some sense of, okay, Israel's distinct. Israel is hanging on just by a thread. And it's at the end of that story that the author of this book of Judges places five chapters that are a horrifying conclusion. So we had an introduction at the beginning, and then we had all these cycles, and now we've got a conclusion. And the conclusion, as I've said, is one of the most disturbing stories in the Bible, maybe in ancient literature, and it's designed to make you go, what? Really? How could this happen? That's what it's there for. It's so disturbing that some people have thought, ah, oh, there's no way this could be true. There's no way that God's people could have really done this. Well, you don't know God's people very well. Because everything bad that happens in the book of Judges happens at the hands of God's people, at the hands of the Israelites. But we believe this really happened, and despite how horrible it is, we believe it's worth studying because the scripture tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That includes even these hard, ugly, I don't want to look at it. It maybe even brings up some pain from my past kind of stories. So that's what we're going to look at here this morning. You ready? Well, I don't know. Seriously, if at any point you need to go, I, I honestly would understand it because this is an intense story. All right, so these last five chapters are divided up kind of in two parts. The first part is chapters 17 and 18, kind of the religious failure of Israel. And then you have 19 to 21, which is the moral failure of Israel. Now, the religious and the moral failure, the spiritual and the social, those overlap, right? Those are not really clear distinctions, but just for the sake of trying to understand it, that's a little bit of what's going on. So in chapter 17, Nikki read the story, you read it along with her, of this guy named Micah who steals a bunch of money from his mom. He steals 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, the average person lived on maybe about 10 pieces of silver a year. So he stole a huge amount of money from his mom, right? Some of you are like, so? It's like, no, that's bad. You're not supposed to do that, right? So he steals all this money from his mom. He comes clean to her, says, hey, I shouldn't have done this. She says, oh, it's okay, son. Why don't we do this? Why don't you take this money and with this money, I'm going to dedicate it to Yahweh. I'm going to dedicate to the Lord. And why don't you build a shrine at your house to Yahweh? You can make a bunch of graven carved images, a bunch of metal images, and we can just worship Yahweh at your house. He says, great idea. Now, if you have read any of the Bible, you know that's not a good idea. Because the first commandment was, love the Lord your God and have no other gods before him right? The second was don't make a carved image. So they're breaking the very first two commandments, but doing it in the name of the Lord. 
And so Micah gets this whole worship thing uh, set up, this whole religious ritual thing going at his house. And he says, you know, there's only one thing that we're missing. We need a Levite. Because in the Old Testament, the Levites were the ones who ran the, the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. He says, we need a real genuine, like in the flesh, Levite. Maybe he can run this thing. And so this, this Levite happens to come by and he says, hey, you're a Levite. Why don't I hire you to, to work at my shrine? And so he does and he gets him and this whole thing is going. And uh, Micah is so deceived. There's so much, um, there's so much blending uh, of, of this is all like the Canaanites would do, right? The Canaanites, the, the, the world would say, hey, worship a God that you can make in your image. Make sure you arrange it the right way so that God has to bless you. They're kind of mixing all this false worship and yet it's in the name of the true God. It's this whole messy thing. And yet he, he, he's convinced because he has this Levite that God's got to bless him. Look at Judges 17 verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This is how confused they are. They think they're serving God. They're using the name Yahweh and yet they're doing it with completely other values. By the way, doesn't that sound a lot like us? Doesn't that sound a lot like the Christian church in our lifetime? You go, what do you mean? Well, we're very prone to do all sorts of things in the name of God. What we really love are other things, right? And so sometimes this looks like nationalism, where what we really are are Americans. And we wanna have a great country and we wanna take it back to the good old days. We might even wanna throw out all the immigrants and make America great again. Maybe. Nationalism, sort of baptized in this, well, yeah, we're a Christian country. Of course we're a Christian country. We're gonna fight for all the Christian rights and blah, 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 blah. It's this syncretism. We're, we're, we're sync, we, we sync up, right? You take kind of true religion and we mix it with a little bit of nationalism or we mix it with consumerism. And we say, you know what? If we're really gonna be able to, to be faithful to God and, and to, to honor God, we gotta appeal to everybody's instincts, right? And so when you have a church, if you wanna reach people, you better have a billboard with people like under the sheets and you better do all kinds of scandalous stuff because that's, that's how we do it. We mix it with individualism, where everything is about me and what I think and what I want and how I, what do I need to do? What does the Bible mean to me? I don't need a commentary because I can just read it for myself. I don't need to hear from anyone else because I can just read it for myself. Just what does this mean for me? Would you ever think about what it meant for us? What does it mean for the people of God as a whole? What does it mean for us as a community? Right, we mix all of these things together. They were doing the same thing. Well, chapter 18 talks about how this, uh, this whole like, idolatrous shrine is so popular that the tribe of Dan, this is one of the, the tribes of Israel, they see it and they say, man, we want it. And so they uh, decide to take this, uh, this uh, shrine, they take all the images, they even take the Levite up to this new territory that they're moving to. And you read it and you kind of go, what is all this about? What is the point? Why is this story here? Well, it's here for two reasons. One, to show you this is what happens when people just do what's right in their own eyes, right? That's what it said in 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they're going to worship God the way they want. 
And secondly, there's a big punchline at the end of 18. Because all through chapter 17 and all through chapter 18, it talks about this Levite, this Levite, this Levite, who's there to do this worship, who's there to run the shrine. And it never names the Levite until the end of chapter 18, verse 30, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites, until the day of the captivity of the land. Now we go, okay, huh? What does that mean? Here's what it means. The Levite who's running the idolatrous shrine is the grandson of Moses. How quickly God's people have fallen. You go, wait a minute, minute, timeline. I'm trying to get the, we'll talk timeline later. But for now, just realize, and it'll say in chapter 20 that the grandson of Aaron is also a priest at this time. So you're talking about the people of God falling fast. Well, not only do they fall fast, they fall far. And that's the end of this book, verses, or I'm sorry, chapter 19, 20, and 21. And this really tells us about the moral failure of Israel, and it is disturbing, So here's the story. I'm going to just kind of try to summarize the story for the sake of time um, and uh, just for the sake of interest. We'll look at some verses along the way as well, but let me just kind of tell you the story. So it's a new story about a new Levite, okay? So not not Moses' grandson, not the guy at the idolatrous shrine, a new Levite. And this Levite, we're told in the beginning of chapter 19, has a concubine. Now, concubine was kind of a girlfriend, kind of a wife, kind of a slave, Uh, Parts of the story, he's called her husband. Parts of the story, he's called her master. It was not something that the people of Israel were to have. They were not to have concubines. It was a practice that they had picked up from the Canaanites. So he has this concubine. She's unfaithful to him. And he says, I want you out of here. Go away. And so he sends her off. Well, she goes to her father's house. She goes back to live with her parents. They live in Bethlehem. Okay, so she's there for four months. And after four months, this Levi goes, you know what? I I want my woman back. I'm going to go get her. And so he gets his male servant and he gets his animals and he heads down to Bethlehem. He's going to go pick up his woman. He gets there, you know, knocks on the door. The concubine dad-in-law, I don't know what, the, I don't know what you call him, is there. He's like, hey, it's great to see you. It's what, you know, and so they spend a few days eating and drinking and, and really just seems like having a great time. At some point, the Levite goes, okay, we got to go. And the, the father-in-law says, no, 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 stay here, eat and drink. We're going to have a great time. And so they kind of spend the day eating and drinking. He goes, we got to go. He says, no, no, it's too late. You can't go. And so that just ha- keeps happening. And eventually, the Levite's like, no, man, we got to go. And so they, they, they finally leave, but it's late in the day because they spent the whole day sleeping in and then drinking and eating. And finally, they leave. And they aren't going to make it all the way back home. And so they've got to decide where to stop. And so they're thinking, okay, where do we go? And they really have two options. They could go to Jabus, which is a, a city where all the Jebusites live. It's non-Israelites. They go, oh, we don't want to go there. All the non-Israelites, they're bad to people. We don't want to be around those bad people. Or they could go to Gibeah. Gibeah is a, an Israelite town. It's part of the tribe of Benjamin. So they go, okay, we don't want to be around those bad Jebusites. Let's, let's go be in Gibeah. So they show up in Gibeah, and the way that it worked in these days, just kind of the hospitality practices, right? You didn't have a, there weren't hotels, there weren't uh, restaurants, there weren't, uh, you know, rest stops, things like that. So if you had to figure out a place to stay, you you would go in and you would kind of hang out in the town square. 
And you'd wait for someone to offer you hospitality. Well, they get there, and no one offers them hospitality. They sit, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And then finally, an older gentleman comes along, and he says, hey, where are you guys from? And they say, we're from Ephraim. And he says, I used to live in Ephraim. Why don't you come stay with me? And he has them over, and he washes their feet, and he gives them food, and he welcomes them into his home. And it looks like, oh, great, these guys are finally going to get some hospitality. And then in chapter 19, verse 22, it turns really, really bad. It says, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. That word beating in the Hebrew has with the idea of like trying to ram the door down, launching their bodies, if you will, into the door, trying to knock it down, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that sometimes when the word know is used there, what it means is have sex. Bring the men out that we may have. This is disturbing. Right? There's, there's obviously a sexual lust that's going on here. There's a sexual sin that's going on here. There's also a, this was also a way of kind of asserting, this was part of how the Canaanites and those nations would assert male dominance. Right, in order to put you in your place, in order to humiliate you, they might rape you that way. So both of these things are happening. And get this, they're happening from Israelites. Now this story sounds familiar to the people who would have first been reading this book. And if you've read the Bible, they might sound familiar to you because this would sound like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a story in Genesis 19 where Abraham is visited by some angels and these angels are staying in his home and he's offering hospitality to them. And the men of Sodom gather around the house and they bang on the doors and they say this exact same thing. And as a result of it, Sodom is destroyed. Sodom is wiped off the earth. It's the absolute picture in the Old Testament of evil. And now the Israelites have become the new Sodom. That's how far they've sunk. That's how far they've gone. Well, in the story in Genesis 19, they never got to act on it. What about here? So, verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, this is now the Levite, the first guy in the story. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And I I don't even want to read the next few verses out loud. Think of the horror of this. Don't do this. But we'll send these girls. Get out there, honey. You wanted to be unfaithful? Go for it. Just callous and horrible and wicked. It says in verse 27, and her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. A lot of compassion there, huh? 
But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. Horrible. And it gets worse. Verse 29, and when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The people of God are worse than Sodom. Not only is this woman killed and left for dead, but then in order to get the word out, right, because maybe he thinks, well, they're not going to listen if I just write a letter about what the men of Gibeah did. I got I to gotta send these care packages out. And so, you know, mayor after mayor after mayor in all these Israelite tribes, hey, the male's here and he's opening up a box and it's got a foot or a head or an arm or something. And they're horrified. They're going, well, what do we do about this? This is terrible. How could this happen in Israel? They say, we got to do something. And so in chapter 20, the rest of the tribes of Israel decide, we're going to do something about this. We've got to hold these men from Gibeah accountable. And so they gather up this huge army from all 11 tribes, except for the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Gibeah was. And they go and they line up against the town of Gibeah. And they say, hey, give out, bring out the guys who did this. Bring out the people who did this atrocity. The men of Gibeah say, no, he's our guy. We're not going to send him out. And the tribe of Benjamin, which Gibeah was part of, says, no, we're not going to let you do that. And so the rest of the 11 tribes say, well, this is a huge problem. We have got to hold these people accountable. And so we're going to fight them. And before they fight them, they make an agreement. All these 11 tribes, they say, you know what? We're going to make this agreement that none of us are going to ever give one of our daughters to a Benjamite in marriage. Okay, deal? Pinky swear we're in on this? They make the deal, they make that covenant, they make that agreement, and now the 11 tribes are going to fight against Benjamin. So they're there, the battle's ready, they attack, and the tribe of Benjamin pushes them back, kills about 20,000 some people. And then the next day, it happens again. They attack, the tribe of Benjamin kills tens of thousands of people. On the third day, the rest of the tribes of Israel, they run away to make the Benjamites sort of chase after them. And then they send some other guys in to sneak back and they get into Gibeah and they burn Gibeah to the ground. They kill every man, woman, child. And in fact, they kill every man, woman, and child in the tribe of Benjamin, except 600 who ran away into the desert. So it's this huge resounding victory. They got justice. They got what they wanted. But then it occurs to somebody, wait a minute, we've just, we've just wiped out a tribe of Israel. They hadn't even heard of the lost tribe of Israel at this point. You know, we, 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 we just wipe, we just about wiped this, this whole Benjamin tribe out. What are we going to, this is a huge problem. What should we do? Someone says, well, we got to get wives for these 600 Benjamites. Someone else says, yeah, but there's a problem. We all agreed that we're not going to give our daughters in marriage to a Benjamite. What are we going to do? Someone in the back goes, well, you know what? Those jerks at Jabesh Gilead, they never showed up for the battle. Why don't we just go attack them and take their women? Good idea. And so they go to this town, Jabesh Gilead, part of the 11 tribes that didn't attack. 
And they go to Jabesh Gilead and they kill every man, woman, and child except for the young virgin girls. And they take about 400 of them and give them to the six, you know, to 400 of the 600 Benjamites who are left alive. Now they've wiped out another city. Well, now what about the 200 guys that didn't win the wife lottery? What are they going to do? Someone says, I got an idea. They have this festival at Shiloh every year. At Shiloh, what happens, they have this big party. And at some point, all the young unmarried girls, they come out and they do this dance. Here's what we'll do. We'll have these 200 Benjamites hide in the woods, hide in the weeds, and they can kind of be there waiting. And when the girls come out to do their dance, they'll run out there, they'll grab them, you know, grab one, sling her over your shoulder, kidnap her, take her off and get yourself a wife. Someone goes, well, but how are we going to do that? Because they said they can't give their daughters a marriage. Yeah, that's right. So if we kidnap them, then the dads will be able to say they kept their vow. And the Benjamites will have a wife. Good plan? Yeah, good plan. And that's what they do. And that's how the book of Judges ends. One commentator says that one rape led to 600 and it's over, it ends. That's how it ends. This is not a story you wanna tell your kids, right? Mommy, mommy, tell me the one about the concubine and the hacksaw. (laughs) This is horrible, this is disgusting. It's meant to shock you. It's meant to make you go, what? God's people did this? Yes. God's people did this. And at the end, there's no hope. There's no deliverer coming. It just says, the end of chapter 21, verse 24, and the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And isn't that what happened? Everyone did what's right in his own eyes. The Levite thought it was right in his eyes to have a concubine. Even though that was against God's law, he wanted it. So he had one. She was unfaithful. He figures, it's right in my eyes. Get out of here. He wants her back. He says, I'm going to take her back. Right? They get to Gibeah. The men of Gibeah go, we don't want you here. We're going to do this horrible thing to show you who's boss. It's right in their eyes. The Levite says, you know what? We wouldn't even be in this mess if you hadn't first of all, cheated on me, and second of all, if your dad hadn't kept us so long, getting me drunk every night, so you know what? Get out there. That's right in my eyes. I think that's the right thing to do. Serves you right. He goes, I've got to send a message. I've got to make sure everyone listens, so you know what? It makes sense. It's right in my eyes. Let's chop her up. You know what? Let's destroy those Benjamites. You know what? Let's defend these rapists. You know what? Let's, and it's all just everyone doing what's right in their eyes. That's the end of the book of Judges. What are we supposed to get from it? What might God want us to hear from that? There's a number of things I want to share. Here's the first one. You cannot do what's right in your own eyes without hurting somebody. You can't do it. Right, and we've said along the way that this phrase, what's right in your own eyes, it's kind of like whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want, wherever you want. 
But, but most of us are going, well, I, don't, I don't do that. But you do do what's right in your own eyes. Everything you do, you go, that makes sense to me. That sounds right to me. And if you live that way, no king, no moral authority, no rules, no one who's Lord of your life except you, you will hurt people. And here's what makes this so hard, is our culture and the media and music and advertising is doing all of this stuff every day to try to reach into your heart and to say, do what's right for you. Do what feels true for you. This is your journey. This is your story. No one can tell you not to. Just do what feels right to you. And there's something in you and there's something in me that hears that and is like, yeah, yeah I want that. I want to do what feels right to me. I don't want other people telling me what to do. And what the book of Judges shows us, listen, is you can't do that without hurting people. This idea, you can just do whatever is right in your own eyes, it's wrong and it's stupid. And yet it's so convincing. But it makes no sense when you really think about it. Think about it. Here's the first thing why this doesn't work. Only the super rich can really afford it. Because eventually, if you just keep doing what's right to you, you need to hire a lawyer. Right? You can't just keep doing whatever you want, keep doing what's right to you. Who cares about the consequences? You can't do that unless you have a lot of money. And it's interesting that the culture is so shaped by the entertainment type people who are in this super rich category. They're the very few people who kind of can do what's right in their own eyes. And they shape how the rest of us think. And yet it's so backwards to what God says. Here's another reason why this is a big problem, is that no people with real world wisdom think this is right. No kindergarten teacher says to the kids at the end of the day, all right kids, here's what you need in order to be happy. Do whatever feels good to you. No one can tell you what to do. Have a great weekend. Right? Now, maybe you go, well, some do. Well, that, they're stupid. Right? No good kindergarten teachers do that. Right? Listen, think about this. So, some of you are very involved in foster care and adoption. No, no, no caseworker for child services looks at the birth parents who have lost their kids and says, here's the key to getting your kids back. Just do whatever feels right to you. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. Do what's right in your eyes, and that's how you'll get them back. No one would say that. No law enforcement officer, no judge, no person with real, like, this is how the world works, would say, just do what feels right to you. Because it's foolish. Here's the next thing we see, and this is huge in this story. This is why this doesn't work, is that this generally works out much better for men than for women. I mean, isn't it just appalling the way women are, are just treated like property? Just totally, right? Even the, I mean, it's one thing, I, as horrible as it is, I mean, the, the Levite who sends his concubine out, but the master of the house who says, you want my daughter and his concubine? It's insane. 
But when we do what just feels right to us, when that becomes the dominant way of thinking in a culture, it always works out better for men. Because men get to shape it, and men get to do what's right in their eyes. And what's right in their eyes is to make women small, and to make women unimportant, and to make women property. It's why everywhere that women's rights has happened, women have had to fight for it. Because cultures are set up with lots of people doing what's right in their own eyes, and it always works out better for the men. I hope you don't see this judge's story, even though it's in the Bible, as God saying, this is how it should be. You get that, right? This is God saying, do you see how horrible it is? That's not how it's supposed to be. And here's the last reason why that doesn't work, is because eventually you hurt somebody. You hurt you. People go, I can do what I want. I can do what's right in my eyes as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. I can do what feels good for me as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, you're somebody, and it's going to hurt you. It's eventually going to hurt you to go down this path. We said at the very beginning, we've said it throughout this series, that the things that end up enslaving you all began as expressions of your freedom. You're enslaved to alcohol, it began as an expression of freedom. You're enslaved to pornography, it it began as an expression of freedom. You're enslaved to a relationship with someone that isn't your spouse, it began as an expression of freedom. And eventually, if you just do what feels right to you, what you think's right in your eyes, you will hurt you. And if you have kids... You can't hurt you without hurting them. If you have parents, you can't hurt you without hurting them. If you have friends, you can't hurt you without hurting them. It always hurts somebody. You can't do what's right in your own eyes without hurting someone. Here's the second thing. You can drift away from God faster than you think. You can drift away from God a lot faster than you think. So I want to go back to, remember when I was telling you the story, we talked about how the, Le- the, the first Levite who was working at the idolatrous shrine of Micah, he was the grandson of Moses. And we said later in the story, we saw that the grandson of Aaron was also involved in this time. You go, okay, okay chronologically, what, is, what does that mean? Okay, so let me show you this. This is the arrangement of the book of Judges. This is how the author arranged the story, all right? They wrote Chapters 1 and 2, kind of an introduction. Chapters 3 to 16 is all the cycles. And then there's this conclusion of 17 to 21. So that's how, the, that's how the author arranged the material. But what does that show us? That in chapter 17 and 20, we're talking about the grandkids of Moses and Aaron. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means the actual chronology, the actual timeline of when the events took place looks more like this. Remember how it said in chapter 2, verse 10? And there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Here's what this means. All of this stuff that's put at the end that makes you think, oh my gosh, look at how bad it's gotten, actually took place at the beginning. It would be like this. It would be like imagine a woman who uh, on her honeymoon, she sees her, her husband kind of looking at other women out on the beach. She's like, huh, that's kind of weird. And then a few years later, she catches him looking at pornography and she confronts him about it. He goes, oh no, I just, you know, I, I'm sorry. And, and then a few years later, she notices all these 
texts that come in and, and all these things that he sort of feels nervous about. And she goes, huh. And then, and, then, and then a number of years later, she finally catches him in an affair. And she's thinking, how did you let it get to this point? And then he tells her, you know what? I've been cheating on you the whole time. I was cheating on you when we were engaged. That's the, this story, right? Re, we read it at the end and go, how could it get this bad? And the author here says, it's always been this bad. What does that mean for us? What that means for us is you can fall, you can drift, you can wander from God a lot faster than you think. You think, well, I've been struggling a little bit. Well, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not kind of where I was a few years ago in my relationship with the Lord, but, you know, it'll get back on track and, and something will happen. And, you know, I'm just waiting on God to kind of bring this crisis into my life and that'll get my attention and then I'll do something about it. And Really? The grandson of Moses was leading idolatrous worship. That's how quick it went. And you think, well, it'll just get better. I don't need to repent. I don't need to ask forgiveness. I don't need to take serious inventory of the direction of my life. You're in danger. Because this can get out of hand fast. You can drift fast. And next thing you know, you've forgotten the Lord. You can't do what's right in your own eyes without hurting people. And this can go bad faster than you think. But let's finish with this. There's hope. So here's the last thing. Our deepest problem won't be fixed with merely human solutions. There's part of you that just from a storytelling perspective is like, this story stinks. What a terrible ending. Why did he put this at the end? Right, because clearly this isn't the order it happened in. He's putting it here for a reason. He's putting it at the end to make a point. What's the point? The point is there is no human solution. If everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, they're not looking to God as king, there's no human fix for this deep problem. What's the deep problem? The deep problem is in you, it's in me, it's in everyone, it's in our culture. It's that idea that we don't need God as king, we'll do what's right in our own eyes. What will fix that? Us trying to figure out what's right? No. And so as dark and depressing and disturbing as the end of this book is, I actually think that's hopeful. Because what it does is it says, Look at how far bad it gets when you lean on your own understanding, when you lean on your own wisdom, when you lean on your own strength. Why don't you give up hope in that? And why don't you instead look to the one that Judges points to, look to the flawless deliverer that all of these flawed deliverers point to, Jesus Christ. Look to him. He's the only hope. He's the only answer. And it's so interesting that if you read the next page, right after Judges 21 is Ruth chapter 1. And Ruth takes place, it says in the first verse, in the time of the judges. And Ruth's name is in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the true king. Even in the midst of this horrible situation, 
It's pointing to a flawless deliverer. It's pointing to a bigger savior. It's pointing to the true king. This is what we're longing for. This is what we're hoping for. And our human answers can't get it. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl or watched the Super Bowl halftime show. I actually mostly liked it. And uh, regardless of what you think about Beyonce and controversies and Coldplay and Bruno Mars and whatever, there was a fascinating thing at the end. Do you remember the end of the halftime show, the Super Bowl? The end of the halftime show, Chris Martin from Coldplay and Beyonce and Bruno Mars, they're standing there and there's this huge like choir behind them and they're singing. And you know what they're singing? They're singing, we got to get it, get it together right now. We got to get it, get it together somehow. We got to get it, get it together right now. We got to get it, get it together somehow. And I'm sitting there watching and going, that's the world's answer. Because the world knows it's not together. The world knows this isn't life as we imagined or hoped it would be. This is broken. This is wrong. This is messed up. This is not it. We got to get it together. And, and, And I love the honesty of that line. Somehow. Somehow. And the conclusion was believe in love. And here's what I want to tell you. Do we need to get it together somehow? Yes. Is the answer to believe in love? Yes. Is the answer to believe in our ability to love, in our ability to get it together, in our ability to fix it? No. That's the world. The the world sees the problem. The church even sees the problem. And so we need to look to the better answer. And the better answer is that God sent the true deliverer who saves us, not just from the feelings of our sin, but the roots of it, and who cleanses us, and who purifies us, and who sends his spirit in us, and who lives with him as our king, so that we can be changed from the inside out. That is our hope. And so if the book of Judges feels hopeless, it should. And you should look to the rest of the story and go, oh yes, there's hope here, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous gift to be able to study your word and to be able to look at a book like Judges. Um, God, we invite you to continue to do surgery on our hearts and cause us to want to do what's right in your eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna take a few-